Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Luke, chapter 7. This morning, we're going to consider verses 1 through 17. So Luke, chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. This is the Word of God. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this. Because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Before we uh, consider this passage together, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for who you are. And Father, we confess that we do not know you perfectly or exhaustively, but because of your revelation to us, we can know you truly. And Lord, I pray that this morning you will work in our hearts and work in our minds. You are the one who can help us to know you. And Father, I pray that through your word we will be able to see the character of Jesus. I pray that you will allow us to know him, to understand him, to love him more than we ever have before. I pray that you will encourage our hearts through the power and the compassion of Jesus. I pray that your spirit will be with us. I pray that you will 
just do the work that only you can do. I pray that you will make us one, that you will bring us to complete unity. I pray that your spirit will be at home here. I pray that our thoughts and our attitudes and our conduct will be pleasing to you. And Father, I pray that you will help us to really, truly be a light in this world, not because we can generate light out of ourselves, but because we can contain and reflect your light when you shine it into our midst. Father, we pray for those who are at onside. I pray that you will use the connections that we are making to help us be a blessing to them and to help them to come to know Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, we pray that you will be with everyone this morning, whether they are here or somewhere else, just watch over them, draw them close to yourself. Lord, this morning we do pray for for those who are sick. We pray for those who are recovering from surgery. Father, we pray for those who are bereaved and experiencing loss this morning. We just pray that you will give them strength and comfort. We pray that, that you will draw them close to yourself and close to one another. We pray that you will surround them with love. And Lord, we pray that uh, you will walk with them, guide their steps, help them to find deep strength and comfort through the love of Christ. Father, this morning, help us to see Jesus, for we ask it in his holy name. Amen. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes these very famous words. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. In fact, one of the things that the scriptures does is it trains us in righteousness through rebuke and correction. That's one of its functions. So if we are faithful to the word of God, then there will be times when we will feel the sting of rebuke. Uh, It is a Western construct, not a biblical construct, to always try to make people feel happy. Uh, The word of God is a double-edged sword. It pierces and it cuts, not to wound, but to wound to heal in the same way that a surgeon has to use sharp tools sometimes to get the job done. And so scripture is a double-edged sword. It cuts, it hurts, it stings so that we can be righteous, so that we can learn how to follow God, so we can have the depths of our heart exposed, so that the spotlight of the word of God can shine in, show us the darkness, not to make us feel bad, but so that we can repent and turn away and grow in righteousness and follow the Lord. Some passages come across more negatively than others. I don't know if, uh, probably none of you remember very much of what I say. Uh, if you were here last week, you might remember one or two things uh, from last week's service. Uh, but verses 37 to 49 of chapter 6 is one of those passages of Jesus that bites and it cuts. And you can't faithfully work through it without feeling the sting. You can't. Because it is cast to cut, and it is cast to expose our sin. However, because the word of God is a double-edged sword, it also, though, has a positive lining, even though the thrust of the text is not positive. Nevertheless, there are still 
whispers of hope, whispers of grace, whispers of patience. So, you are not to judge, you are not to condemn, but if you forgive, you will be forgiven. That's positive. You are not to be blind leading the blind. You are not to be a hypocrite with a load-bearing beam in your own eye, trying to get sawdust out of your brother's eye. But if you can remove that load-bearing beam, then you can help your brother. That's positive. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. Verse 45, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. That's positive. If you have good in your heart, you can bring that good out like treasure. That's a positive thing. And then there are people in the end, even though Jesus says in verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say, establishing the framework of a negative critique of hypocritical followers. Nonetheless, those who do hear his words and, non-negotiable, put them into practice, not the same thing, They are like someone who builds a solid house that will not be knocked over no matter how the storms rage around them. And so even here, there is, in the midst of a negative, stinging, biting, cutting critique that pierces to the heart, there is patience and grace and hope. But this brings us to one of the great catch-22s of all philosophy and religion. If a bad tree bears bad fruit, which it does, if a fool continues to perpetuate and generate folly, how can a fool become wise? And how can someone who is wicked become righteous? How can a bad tree become a good tree? How is any of that possible? Aristotle basically says this. Well, if you're not virtuous, what you really need to do is pretend that you are. And just go through the motions. Pretend you're virtuous. Try to do something virtuous. And over time, if you just sort of pretend you're virtuous, eventually you'll forget that you're pretending and it'll become second nature to you and you can become virtuous just through your behavior, just through sort of this great, you know, pretending self-help program. You know, find, find the good within you and if it's not there, just fake it. You know, fake it until it's real. You know, that's sort of Aristotle's advice, you know, for people who want to become virtuous. Well, that is not what scripture teaches for a couple of reasons. Now, one of them is that it soft pedals the condition of our own heart. But this is one of the marks of the false prophets in the Old Testament. The false prophets are known by always saying peace and safety, peace and safety, when there is no peace and there is no safety. And God has a blistering critique of the false prophets because he he says, they treat my people's wound as if it's not serious. They're always coming along and saying, oh, it's just a band-aid. No, no surgery is required. I have good news for you. Things are fine. We We can tweak, but you know what? everything's great. God says, that's a false prophet every time. Uh, They treat my people's wound as if it is not serious. Sin is serious, and it requires serious treatment. It's just not a game. 
And so the Lord reveals that our hearts in sin are desperately wicked, and we do not have the power to change our hearts, and no amount of self-righteous religious activity is ever going to make us okay. We do not have the intrinsic power to make ourselves better. We do not have the ability to clean ourselves up enough to meet the standard of God. We cannot do it. The bad news is, you know, we are all born into sin with a sin nature. You know, as has often been said, you know, our sin is so ingrained that, you know, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. In other words, it's not just the wrong things that we do that make us sinful. It is that nature which produces the sin in the first place. So we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. So what help, what hope is there for any of us if we start out lost in sin and we are not able to clean ourselves up? What hope for those of us, all of us, who are bad trees? How can we be transformed into good ones? How is that possible? Well, just hang on to that. Because Luke has constructed his gospel very particularly. It's on purpose. And so, chapter 7, verse 1, after Jesus said, had finished saying these things, after Jesus has addressed the issues of the heart, a centurion sends messengers to him. And this centurion is a God-fearer. This means he's not a Jew. He's not Jewish, but he's a Gentile. And yet he has come to revere and honor the God of Israel. And so he is someone who takes scripture seriously. He's someone who takes the word of God seriously. He's someone who takes, you know, the Lord of Israel seriously. And, and the Jewish elders come to Jesus in verse four and they plead with him. It says they pleaded earnestly with him. And so you know that this guy, uh, this Roman officer in the army, is not like your average Roman soldier. Uh, because the Jews were occupied by the Roman soldiers. The Jews hated the Romans because of their oppression, because of the oppression that they meted out, because of their violence, because of their sacrilege in the Jewish estimation. And so the Jews wanted nothing more than for the Romans to go. They did not want them around. They certainly didn't intercede for them. They didn't try to help them. And yet here, the Jewish elders come and earnestly plead with Jesus, you need to help this Roman officer. You need to help this Gentile oppressor. Why? Because although he's a Roman, although he's an army officer, he loves the nation, verse 5. And literally the text says, he himself built the synagogue, meaning the place where the Jewish people would meet to read scripture and to teach. This man had funded it. He had paid for it. And so he wouldn't do that, you know, unless he had an esteem of God. He wouldn't do that unless he loved the people. And so the Jewish elders come and they plead with Jesus. This man isn't like every other Roman. This man is is different. This man deserves you to do this for him. He, he's owed it. Look at his works. Look at his love. And like everywhere else, apparently, this is good to know this is a first century issue as well as it is today. Uh, you give enough money, and people will think God owes you something. You know, He built our synagogue. I mean, he funded it. I mean, if anyone deserves to be blessed by God, it's people who write big checks. 
right? That's the message we get, you know, a lot. So that's what we do, you know. Sometimes we turn it around. If you want to be blessed, just write a big check, you know, and then you'll be blessed. And yet, this is how they approach. Look, he built the synagogue. What else can a guy do? He loves our nation. He put his money where his mouth is. And so Jesus goes with them. And he's not far from the house, and the centurion sends other people with a very explicit message. Tell tell Jesus, Lord. And a Roman centurion is not in the habit of addressing a conquered people as Lord. Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is an amazing thing. The people interceding for him say, Jesus, he deserves it. But as Jesus gets close, as this man is thinking about who Jesus is and what he knows about him, as he begins to think of his own life, as he begins to think of his own heart, even though he's made the request, he begins to feel, I do not deserve this. And I think everyone who really knows God at some level can relate to that. Other people might think that God owes us blessing. Other people might say, you know, if they were to pray for us, look at what all, look at all that they do. If anyone deserves it, it's them. But when it's just you and God, when Jesus is drawing close, there's that, there's that growing, dawning awareness. If you know who he is and you can discern even a little bit about your own heart, I am not worthy to be in the presence of Jesus. I do not deserve for him to come into my house. And so the man, as Jesus is coming closer, as he begins to look at his own life, his own heart, he begins to think about how great Jesus is. He has this deep, profound sense of unworthiness. Other people thought he deserved it, but he himself knows better. He says, Lord, just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And so what what he's saying here is, Lord, I recognize authority when I see it. And you have authority. You have an authority unlike anything I have ever seen in my life. Listen, I, I command, you know, a thousand soldiers. And I can say to any one of them, hey, you, you know, go do this. And he goes and he does it. But there's also people over me, and when they tell me what to do, I do it. I understand authority. Jesus, you have an authority where if my word accomplishes things, if my word gets things done, your word can do anything. You don't just command people. You can command diseases. You just need to express your will, and it is done. And you don't even need to be in the room. You don't need to come into my house. Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come to me. Just say the word. I recognize authority. You have it. You have an authority unlike anything else in the universe. Just say the word. And my servant will be healed. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. In the Gospels, we're told a lot of times, that crowds are amazed at what Jesus does. But we're only told twice that Jesus is amazed. Once is here. The other 
is in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is amazed at the lack of faith in the crowds. Only twice is Jesus ever amazed. Here it's with great faith. In Mark 6, 6, it's about lack of faith. Jesus finds faith amazing. Jesus also finds the lack of faith amazing. After all that I've said, after all that I've done, after all that you've seen, after you have heard my words, you still don't believe? That's astounding to Jesus. What else could it take? What else do you need? But here he is also astounded at the greatness of this person's faith. And it's not just that this man has said, you can heal my servant from a distance. I mean, that, that is one thing. But the thing that really impresses Jesus, and this is actually made a little bit more clear in Matthew's account of the same incident, uh, the thing that really impresses Jesus is that this man recognizes Jesus' authority. In other words, he can see sort of through the veil a little bit. He has a bit of a penetrating gaze. This man looks at Jesus and says, to do the things that you do, you must have an incredible authority. And that's when Jesus says, man, you get it. And he says to the crowd, I tell you, listen, I've never found anyone, even in Israel, who gets it like this guy does. He understands my authority. It's an incredible thing. I'm amazed that this man can see, can penetrate into my character, into my nature, to understand that I have an authority unlike anything he has ever seen. And he would know. He's a centurion. He's in the most disciplined military at that point in the history of the world. If anyone knows authority, it's this guy. And God gives him the eyes to sort of transfer what he knows in his human experience in those sort of horizontal relationships to the vertical relationship with God. And he recognizes that Jesus has an authority unlike anyone else. The centurion recognizes that Jesus is Lord over all. And Jesus is amazed. How far does Jesus' authority go, though? Here, Jesus has demonstrated his profound ability, because he speaks the word and the servant is healed. He can heal. He can heal sickness when someone is dying, even if he's not there. But the next account, in verses 11 through 17, show us that Jesus has an authority that goes beyond even healing, sickness, and disease, no matter how serious it is. They continue on, and they're met by a a large crowd. A large crowd is with Jesus, and as they're going forward, another crowd comes out. It's a funeral procession. And here, of course, Jesus has not been met by messengers to speak the word to heal this son. And the text is very explicit that this is her only son. And so here is someone who has already been widowed, experiencing the tragedy of that. And now she has lost her only son, experiencing the tragedy of that. And not only is she bereaved, and not only is her heart doubly broken, But in the culture as well, her son is her retirement. Her son is this one son, is the only thing that she can put her hope in, in terms of provision for the future, in terms of work and money and shelter and care. And now, having lost her husband, now she loses her only son. And all of her props are gone. And she walks forward 
desolate in heart and desolate socially. In verse 13 says, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. The Lord was filled with compassion. And this is one of those things about Jesus that to me, it just, it lives in such a profoundly real way. I don't think, I don't think you can, you can invent portraits of people that are so shockingly poignant and yet consistently resonant. That is, you can't make Jesus up to me. Of all the things you're going to follow up with, here you have this clear presentation that a Roman centurion recognizes, Jesus, you have all authority in the universe. There is no one like you. You are Lord of all. No one has the authority you have, and I would know. Now, if I'm creating a portrait of someone, the next thing I'm going to show is an act of, you know, power and, and authority and let's have this person, you know, do something, you know, militarily or let's have this person do something flashy and, and big and, and raising this son is pretty big, right? But Jesus wants you to know he raises this child not just because he can. The being, the person with all of the authority in heaven and on earth has a heart that is filled with compassion in the face of loss. That is an incredible thing. Not high and exalted and powerful and transcendent and omnipotent and who can do whatever he wants with a word, but aloof or floating above the cares of human life. But someone with all the authority in heaven and on earth who can heal with a word, whose heart is moved by loss, whose heart is moved with grief, whose heart is filled with pain, who takes time. And if all that he could be doing, I think well, if, you had the, if you had the authority and the power to do anything you wanted today, you know, how, how self-indulgent would you be? I'd have a new car. You know, I mean, like, it's just so easy to start looking at what I would do for me. And Jesus on the road as he's tired and as he's traveling, he meets this person. And the first thing we're told about him is it's not about his authority. It's not about his power. It's about his heart. He is moved with compassion and pity and love. His heart went out to her. It's an old hymn that that talks about Jesus with a beautiful metaphor. It says he is the eagle tempered with the dove. The eagle tempered with the dove. An eagle which is so bold and powerful, lord of the air. A dove which is so meek and mild. And Jesus is both not merely meek and mild, you can't you can't say what Jesus said in Luke six thirty seven through forty nine and be meek and mild. It's not just meek and mild. The power of an eagle, but tempered with the heart and the kindness and the softness of a dove. And he is both. And the gospels present both of those things in equal believability and power. He is both the eagle and the dove. 
don't cry. Don't cry, which is either the rudest and most offensive thing anybody could say in those circumstances. Or a sign that Jesus is about to use his authority with his heart to do something incredible. He touched the litter of the procession, which no one would do except those who had to bear it. And they stopped and he said, Young man, I say to you, get up. Now I know that I know that we're in church. And I know that we've heard these sorts of things before. But don't let the familiarity spoil you. So just pretend that I didn't read this twenty minutes ago. And just pretend you don't know how it ends up. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. What do you think happens? He did. I, like, that's pretty great. I mean, that's pretty shocking. Because we could all say that and it's not going to happen. I, expect, I remember talking about this, actually, in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, you know, once when I was in Africa. And it's preaching, and I was you know, talking about this, and you know, there's kids just milling around all over the place, like just running around, and you know, and that's there's actually there was one one child who is just you know part of the culture. And one of the one of the little kids, probably like, you know maybe two years old at the most, he'd sort of uh, run up and uh, bang the little platform that I was on, and then run back, and he'd laugh, and everyone would laugh. I thought it was great. I thought it was distracting, you know, but it, he thought he thought it was great. And so I you know I'm I'm telling this story about, you know, Jesus and and this widow and all the kids got quiet. And they all stopped running and they all sat and and their eyes got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I remember preaching thinking you don't know how this ends. Like, we do. I'm just so used to talking about these things. You all know the story, and you know, when's lunch, and do we get to go, and, you know, like, you know, is there a playoff basketball game on this afternoon, you know, or whatever, I mean, because we are, and we're already, we know how it ends. Like, let's just, let's move it through, let's move it along. We already know. We knew the end before you started. But if you didn't, and if you were there before it was written down, if you were there to see it, Young man, I say to you, get up. And he got up. That's something. That's something. In John eleven twenty five through 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this. Do you believe the authority of Jesus? That's the question. Are you like the centurion or are you like the crowd? Jesus will be amazed at your faith or lack of faith, depending on how you respond to this issue of his authority. And then John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. 
and come out. Don't be amazed. Be amazed at the authority of Jesus. But don't be amazed that he raises the dead. That's just part of being him. That's all in a day's work for Jesus. He just speaks the word and the sick are healed. He just speaks the word and the dead are raised. So what do we do with this? I mean, today, today, well, he has the same heart and yes, he has the same power. The miracles and the signs done in the Gospels are done to demonstrate the authenticity of the teaching of Jesus. In other words, we must never think of the miracles that Jesus does as sort of brute displays of power. And so when the Pharisees come along and say, Do, show us a sign in the heavens, probably just says, well, I've shown you enough things already, I mean, for goodness sake, if you really cared. But he also says, you know what, if you're not going to be in prayer, there's something I can do for you if you're always looking for more signs. And no, I, I didn't come to do that. I didn't come to just sort of, you know, put handwriting in the sky or, or whatever you want me to do. I, I'm not here to jump through your hoops. Um, the miracles of Jesus are never just raw displays of power. They are always designed to authenticate his teaching as someone from God. But they are also designed to show you, in principle, what Jesus has come to do. They are acts of recreation and fulfillment. So Jesus comes, not just to show off that he's really powerful, the way, honestly, all of us would if we could do things like this. You know, Jesus comes to show, I'm undoing the effects of the curse. I'm rolling back the power of sin. I'm on the side of life and health and wholeness and peace. And I'm going to defeat all of those enemies that plague the human race. And I'm going to show you that I can do it. I can do it now with a word from a distance. Not just sickness, not just terminal sickness, but with a word I can raise the dead. And I will show you that now, not because my plan is to do this all the time throughout all of history. But I'm going to do it enough times now so you know I can do it. And I promise you a day is coming in the future when I will speak and everyone who is in the grave will come out. Don't doubt my authority. I'll raise this child now. My heart is filled with compassion for this family. No, my heart is filled compassion, is filled with compassion for all families. And one day I will speak the word and there will be the resurrection. Not now. It awaits a future day. But know my power and hear my promise. See what I can do and believe in me. Not just believe without evidence. That's not what faith is. Faith is in light of the evidence of Jesus, trusting yourself to him as the most rational thing you can ever do in the universe. That's what biblical faith is. It's holding on to Jesus because he has proven to be everything he said and everything you need. And so we know that today, not every person who's sick is healed. And we know that today, not every funeral ends with someone coming back to life. But Jesus has shown to us what he can do and what he will do with his authority and with his heart of compassion. And a day is coming because he is the resurrection and the life. A day is coming when Jesus is going to return and he is going to speak. 
and Jesus is going to speak, and all people are going to come out of their graves, and he'll be reconstituted with reconstituted bodies. And all of those who have faith like the centurion in Jesus Christ will be raised for everlasting life, eternal life, which is not just duration of moments, but it is a quality of relationship. And that is what Jesus Christ has come to do, and he has done it through his life and through his substitutionary death. That is, he has died in our place. He has experienced death and conquered death, and he himself has come out of the grave so that all of us who are united with him by faith can also come out of the grave when he calls us in that great final climactic day of resurrection and faith. So, how can a bad tree become a good tree? The great question in John 6. A bad tree can become a good tree only through an encounter with Jesus. Only when Jesus comes along, only when Jesus is received, only when Jesus speaks the word can our hearts and lives be transformed. We cannot make ourselves to be other than we are, but Jesus can. Jesus can transform our lives. Jesus can work in us to make us something that we could never be on our own. Because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And if you believe that, and if you entrust yourself to Jesus, then even though you may die, you'll never die. You will always live because of the power of Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. What a great God. What a great Savior. Someone who could say the biting, biting words of John, uh, of Luke 6 and then demonstrate his heart of absolute compassion and love in Luke 7. May God help us to see and know and love Jesus and to take heart. He is in the business of transforming lives even today for life and spiritual health for eternity. He's a great God and worthy to sing praises too. So I'm going to ask our musicians to come uh, and lead us in our closing song.